The title of this morning's talk is Divesting of Me. Yesterday's talk, entitled Searching for Me, was about our relentless search for who we think we ought to be. It's become a cultural imperative. I illustrated this in many ways. I even offered a show-and-tell demonstration with this mug here. Let me present it to you again. Bought it in Rhinebeck. I'll read it for you. It says, Life isn't about finding yourself. Life is about creating yourself. In my talk, I argued that the only significant outcome of this launching of the self as a pre, either as a pre-existing entity you know, finding or as a created evidence entity creating yourself as a fabricated one is to give rise to more suffering. Today I'll start along the same lines and I'll examine further the ways in which we persist in investing in this counterproductive charade of me. And then in the second half I'll explore how to divest from me, how to invite the me to turn in its badge. The Buddha highlighted the ways in which we give rise to the me in the teaching called or known as dependent origination. There are various translations of this. Some translate it as codependent origination, others as dependent arising, codependent arising. It's just the same thing. different translations. In, In this teaching... He outlines a sequence that we tend to fall for. I've I've shared this with you before. Let me repeat it again. It's an important teaching. The starting point is ignorance. That is, the fact that we don't know what we are getting into. So, when our consciousness contacts an object or an event, it's uh, in the habit of rushing to evaluate it as being pleasant, we like it, unpleasant, we don't like it, or in between, neither, we don't care about it. as if it didn't happen. If it's found to be pleasant, 
our mind develops craving, clinging. If it's found to be unpleasant, our mind develops aversion and pushes it away. If it's found to be neither, we ignore it. Now, the clinging creates, creates the clinger. The pushing away creates the antagonist. And so, in either case, as a clinger or as an antagonist, the I, the me, the ego is born. Problem is that the me, the ego, has nowhere to go. And so it's doomed to die. Not just die, you know, the, the end of a person, at the person's life, but that's not the main anxiety. The main anxiety is that the me feels constantly threatened by virtual death. Any time that the process which generated it runs into trouble. As when the craving loses its traction. And so we feel compelled to start to unleash another cycle of craving and clinging to revive the me. Again, we go on doing that and doing that and doing that. Whatever the specific strategies of this process of dependent origination, what's quite extraordinary is the huge investment we make on it in the course of our life. By either clinging to things or pushing them away. And we can see that going on inside ourselves very often. Unless, of course, we're blessed to have overcome it. And we can see that happening in others too. Let me share just one little story about me. My own me. <laughs> As you're likely to have noticed, when I mailed the announcements for the retreat, most of you have seen and gotten. I, I missed out by not indicating who were you supposed to make the checks to. The, the checks should have been made payable to St. Joseph Villa. That's the was the correct answer. Some of you, I understand, made it to Dominican sisters. It was okay. It wasn't a problem. The problem was with me. There's nothing I could do except apologize to the sisters, which I did, correct the web version, which I did, but the sense of 
personal failure lingered on. I'm sure you know that. You have experience with that. And I often catch my mind brooding about it. The intellectual understanding of dependent origination was there, of course. That's not what was lacking. But there <coughs> remained a part of my mind unwilling, refusing to let the teaching in, to let go of the centrality of me. Which part? Obviously, the me. Dependent origination was the last thing the me wanted to hear. Clearly, I was addressing the wrong persona. Clearly, if I was going to find a way of divesting of me, it was not to the me that I should be talking about it. For that, I'd have to bring the rest of who I am into, into the conversation. And eventually, I did. And soon it became clear that the way to put an end to my relentless blaming myself and suffering was to simply, simply drop my investment on the self, to divest of me. Gradually, the word got around the various parts of who I am. <laughs> and they felt such a relief. <laughs> In the end, not only did the suffering subside, but the whole process became a remarkable learning opportunity about stuff that's still going on inside me, you know. Yeah. On the whole, in this and many other similar situations, it is crucial to question our own press releases. <laughs> Why? Because they are the favorite tool of the ego. Good or bad presses, press releases, they still put the ego in the headlines, you know. In fact, as if you look at the headlines uh, any time in TV or, or the newspapers, what stands out is the catastrophes, the things that go wrong. And, and that makes the news, makes the press release important. So we use those press releases to make ourselves conspicuous, whether for good, I mean with a good release or a bad release. Although these press releases seem to be addressed to an external audience, in reality, they are intended addressed for the internal audience of the rest of who we are. Much too often, we fall for those self-centered press releases. But when we choose to question them, they are likely to reveal the agenda of the self. No wonder psychotherapists 
are so interested in examining the press releases of their patients. As a result of that examination, the therapist may offer an alternative release, or even better, can help to create space in which the patient is likely to begin things unfiltered by preconceptions. And that's what meditation is about. A practice meant to create open spaces in our minds. Spaces in which we can process any experience. Not by using still more reasoning, but by uncovering the deeper undercurrents of our mind. Now, in order to be able to access these open spaces, these deeper open spaces, we need to, once again, I say it, we need to dismiss the public relations officer stationed inside ourselves. The one who's in charge of generated that relentless streams of thoughts in order to support uh, its press releases. Louder, please. Yes, thank you. The, the one that's in charge of generating the relentless stream of thoughts in order to support its press releases. The trick, as you all know, for dismissing this inner PR officer is to focus our attention on some concrete bodily experience, say the breath. One that is not likely to be contaminated by the PR apparatus. True, we could still turn the breath into something to evaluate and take credit for it. Hey, what a good breath I have. (laughs) But the foolishness of doing so is bound to dawn us sooner or later. Being directly present with such concrete bodily experience gives our mind the opportunity to appreciate an experience that is unadulterated by the demands of the me. And so we come to appreciate what really matters, what matters beyond the practicalities of daily life. And what matters is not to retain and evaluate the stuff that gets projected on the screen of our mind. What matters is the screen itself fit to become empty and thus thus receptive to all that comes its way. And then the mind can appreciate the connectivity that results from that.
with an empty screen were invited into a world that where nothing has been pre-programmed and everything is possible. True, given the tendency of the ego to pre-program everything, this is bound to make us feel insecure. Yeah, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah. It's not really a problem, you know. Perhaps you've heard of this woman called Eve Ensler, who's a teacher and activist. And she made this very clear when she proclaimed herself to be insecure at last. Hi! (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Ego. But insecurity is the price of freedom. Anyway, security is fake, you know. I mean, we create secure, the illusion of security, that's all we can create. So, how do we clear the screen? How do we create conditions for such a blessed insecurity? As I said, one way is meditation practice. Meditation practice. Thanks for asking when you want to hear something. I need your help for that. And strangely enough, There's another way, and that can be mental illness. Mental illness can accomplish that too. No more artificial barriers, no more protective programming. Of course, this can, can be horrible consequences too. This indiscriminate breakdown of mental capacities can have, is bound to have many dismal side effects, of course. Effects, not just sides sometimes. (coughs) But here, when I talk about this, I'm only interested in the unexpected bonus it might offer, as it Dismantle the unsuitable (coughs) programming of the mind. (coughs) Let me illustrate this with two examples. Sample number one. Recently, Raquel and me received a visit from a couple we used to know when we lived on Long Island several decades ago. At the time... I had difficulties related to the husband whom I found to be a a very self-assertive guy. Much too self-assertive guy. He was sure of everything he said. But since then he developed Alzheimer's disease and as a consequence his demeanor, demeanor completely changed. (coughs) He became the sweetest kind of 
persons. Although he had some difficulty articulating words, he transmitted affection through his gestures and demeanor. I was touched by his presence well beyond any expectations I could have had. This visit of the Long Island couple brought back to my memory the story I read recently. This is number two example. That's a story of a severely amnesic patient called Henry. We don't give the last name for whatever reasons. And about him a book was recently <coughs> published under the <coughs> title of Permanent Present Tense. When Henry was 24 years old, he developed severe epilepsy. To alleviate his symptoms, a large portion, portion of the temporal lobes of his brain were removed. Was removed. It worked. His seizures diminished. But as a result of the surgery, he lost most of his ability to remember anything. He lived until age 82, <coughs> when he recently died, and he was many subject of many studies concerning the nature and location of memory. But that's not what interests me. What interested me is that he's said to have been the gentlest of persons, always good-natured and free from stress. It would appear that with the screen of the mind being wiped clean time and time again, there was no opportunity for him to invest in the fabrication of his own image in this mug thing. Rather, moment after moment, everything was new to him, including himself. Okay, now let's go back and consider meditation practice. What Alzheimer or brain surgeon did for the patients I just discussed is what our practice is meant to do for us, of course, without the dismal, often dismal, side effects of illness or surgery. Meditation invites us time and time again, organically, to clear the screen of our mind. Doing so makes it plain, obvious, that what's stored on that screen is not the final truth of things, but merely a projection. And of course, like any projection, suitable, susceptible to distor distortions. 
it's true that we do need such projections to function in the world. That's fine. And of course, meditation, you're not always in a meditative state. You go back and forth to daily life and meditation. But having come to know that these projections can be cleared away when not needed, we come to access a deeper wisdom. A wisdom that comes from knowing experientially, first hand, or I should say, first mind, the depth of emptiness. And from the joy, the intimacy that emanates from that knowing. Roshi Pat and Kyohara, a Zen teacher, puts it quite effectively in a recent article. Let me share bits of it it with you. It's in Tricycle, actually. This year. True joy, with its sense of wonder and reverence, comes of itself and neither depends on nor arises out of our personal ego attachments, our projections or our needs. True joy comes of itself. Often this is the simplest of moments, a surprising joy that lifts you up when you feel a cool breeze on a crowded city street, a flash of inspiration as you glimpse the moon behind the cloud, a drop of water on a leaf, or a toddler laughing. It is just what's actually coming up in this moment if we are free to notice it. We can't control joy. It's something that bobs up when we are truly alive and meet the whole world in an instance. We can experience joy in every aspect of our life, in working, in care, in creating, even in suffering. In pain, actually, I would put it. I think the key to experiencing joy is as we say so often, being awake. Now, what is being awake? Isn't it our capability to let go of our grasping onto what we think we want, what we think is happening to us, to drop all those presumptions and be exposed and intimate with what is here right now? I believe it's our resistance to what is right here, right now, that blocks our natural flow of joy. You could even say that it's the search for joy that brings us to practice meditation. We may call it something else. Fear from our fear, from our anxiety, from our obsessions, from our sadness from our grasping greed, 
Yet, if we go a little deeper, we may find that the key to our liberation from our fears is getting really close to ourselves. Finding our own being deep within. The one who is not afraid, nor actions, nor grasping. The one who is simply here now. The one who spontaneously experiences joy in the ordinary stream of life. And it goes on. When we are willing to be intimate with what is actually here now, to look directly at all of our experience, we may recognize that this is our life, however different from our thoughts and ideas about it. It's as if we hunker down and actually get very real, recognizing that our thoughts of gaining and losing, good and bad, happy and sad, are what distance us from ourselves. If we are willing to hang in with the practice over and over again, noticing how our thoughts of losing or gaining distance ourselves from what is, we open ourselves to a whole new reality. We enter into intimacy with everything we enter with everything. We enter into a world of joy that is so close, so pervasive that we are surprised we haven't been aware of its presence all along. In sum, having left behind our clinging, our fabrication of self, our mug, our investment in me, our self-centered press releases. We discover the empty space that's available to us and we come to inhabit it. We allow emptiness to impregnate our existence. Having about, uh, abandoned our habitual stage with its prearranged scenery and its pre-programmed characters, we discover the fluidity of ourselves, our real and constantly evolving nature. And we come to join a fully interactive universe. I'll talk more about the universe tomorrow. Let's just now sit for a moment in silence.